Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jack Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. From July the 1st, 10 race programs will become the norm at Sydney's Saturday race meetings. This is the result of the introduction of midway races for horses trained in the smaller metro and provincial stables. Midway races will carry $100,000 in prize money, as will the tab highways up from $75,000, while normal Saturday races will go to $130,000. Country Sky 1 races will go to $24,000, Sky 2 races to $15,000, and Country Non-Tab to $10,000. Another 20 meetings will be added to the Country Showcase Series, where minimum stakes will be $30,000. Feature races to receive a prize money boost are the Epsom to 1.5 million and the time-honoured Villiers goes from 250 to 750,000. The English sales this year have produced unbelievable figures at both ends of the market, a clear indicator that many new owners are coming into the industry as individuals, as members of smaller ownership groups or as members of larger syndicates formed by recognised syndication companies. You don't have to own winks to cover all X's and to have a lot of fun in town, on the provincials or on the country circuit. There's never been a better time to go racing in New South Wales. I happened to catch Dean Lester recently on a Monday Sky Racing radio program called Punter's Postmortem. And as always, I was very interested in what he had to say. Dean is one of Australia's best respected form analysts and it's well documented that his dedication to the task knows no bounds. Since 2019, he's undergone eight surgical procedures for a complicated leg infection. Even a six-week stay in hospital last year failed to distract him from hours of form study and the completion of his many radio commitments. We're talking about a 52-year-old who was diagnosed with spina bifida at birth. He's been in a wheelchair for 19 years and for the past 17 has been undergoing home dialysis. Dean copes magnificently with the difficulties of day-to-day life and continues to provide a professional and expert service to his many followers around Australia. From Monday to Sunday... He's currently responsible for 10 presentations on four radio networks in as many states. His insightful comments and race selections have brought him a loyal following all over Australia. In contemplating his future, Dean Lester knew he wanted to be involved one way or another with horse racing. He got his start at age 20 when he was appointed Cranbourne Trackman for the Sporting Globe and his journey from that point on has been a fascinating one. I'm absolutely delighted that he's agreed to share it with us on this Supernova Sound podcast on a Sunday morning, and a Sunday with a difference because it happens to be Swan Hill Cup Day, a meeting, Dean, that you're very close to. I am actually, John, yeah. One of my early breaks in radio uh, back in 1998 uh, was uh, to cover the Swan Hill Cup 
Carnival uh, do Manning Yard reports for 3UZ and uh, the late Steve Cairns was fought, uh, good enough to send me up there and uh, we continued that uh, Swan Hill connection for the past 14 years uh, or the next 14 years on course and then I've uh, been still covering it uh, in my uh, current jobs with uh, yeah. RSN and also Sky Sports Radio. I can't begin to imagine uh, the demands involved with presenting 10 radio segments a week combined with your dialysis commitment. You're a marvel. I, I have a very uh, strict uh, time regime, John. I'm, uh, I am very time poor, so I can't uh, I can't waste it. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a pretty busy schedule, but uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, I'm doing something uh, that I totally... Uh, I'm immersed in and love, and uh, mm. I'm very fortunate that that's, uh, that's been my occupation. Life's a little different to the days when you were at the races doing those mounting yard mail segments with the late Roy Higgins, one of your idols. You no longer go to the races, Dean, but you miss nothing on Sky Racing channels, and you've actually set up a home studio from which you cover your many radio commitments. You're well organised. That's true, John. Um, I'm hoping uh, that uh, in times of probably the next 12 months, uh, I will be able to get back on track, especially for carnivals. But uh, yeah, certainly times have changed and uh, I do have a, a home studio that uh, that I can work from. And uh, as you said, uh, watching the meetings through Sky Channel, I, I miss nothing. And mm. uh, I'm fortunate enough with uh, also you know, the modern technology yeah, with form guides, etc., that uh, you can certainly keep well up to speed. Let's take an ordinary Saturday race meeting in Melbourne. You do your own speed maps. I presume you start that on Thursdays. Yeah, fields come out Wednesday. I, I draw them up, have a bit of a think about them, make notes. I'm a, a religious note taker. I, I've got all sorts of little bits and pieces going on from Wednesday about, about the form. I, I print out a worksheet with the runners and the riders and all sorts of things. I I'm still probably a bit of a pen and paper man, but uh, using using the capacity to, with computers. But uh, I uh, I love to make my little notes about uh, the meetings and and then start formulating it from Thursday. The first time that I actually put any selections out publicly is Friday morning on uh, on uh, the RSN breakfast show, and then from there um, by Saturday when the final scratchings come out, I'm on Sky Sports Radio. Uh, and RSN uh, through the morning. I believe by race morning you will have watched the most recent race start or barrier trial of every runner at the meeting. There must be days your head spins. Yeah, there, there certainly is. Uh, and you uh, you look at a field of two-year-olds that uh, there might be 12 unraced and you, you know that that's a bit of a slog because you haven't made any notes on them at all. You've got to try and profile them. I, I sort of that's how I think about myself a bit as a bit of a uh, equine or horse profiler, if you like. That I try and find the strengths and weaknesses in a horse and uh, and use that to your advantage. And uh, when you're looking at a blank canvas on many horses, especially in those two-year-old races, it's uh, it's a lot of work to get that initial profile on them. Yeah, you you've preempted my next question, actually, Dean, because I was going to mention that you. You concentrate on the characteristics of horses. You're looking for a pattern in the way they leave the barrier, the way the way they travel through a race. Any little idiosyncrasy that might help punters determine where that horse might get to in the run. 
Exactly right, and and also the the patterns of a, of the riders as well. Um, a lot of riders will put a horse a little bit closer in the run than other riders. So if you see a jockey change, you might anticipate that that horse will be ridden closer or conversely the more patient riders might ride it further back so you've got to try and blend the the characteristics of the rider to the horse and then you know then they come up with a barrier draw uh to formulate uh you know how you how you you know envisage a race and that's ultimately what i'm trying to see is is what how a race is going to shape up then Mm. you try and you know find the winner from that Mm. It doesn't matter how hard you try or how dedicated you are to the task, you can't escape the ire of a punter who's done his money. And that doesn't sit well with a bloke like you because you take this job very, very seriously. I do, John. Uh, yeah, and I take it as hard as anyone when uh, when you have uh, ordinary days or you, you don't see it well. And, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm probably one that uh, I'm not, that keen on getting the into the uh, praise on social media because I don't want the other side. I don't want the the, mm. the dark side because I'm I'm dark enough after a race and dirty <laughs> enough on myself. Yeah. If I get a, if, if I get a meeting wrong, I don't I don't need uh, reminding. But that's the modern mm. society we live in, and uh, and yeah, you, know, you put yourself out there and you lead with your chin and you have an opinion. Mm. You, sometimes you, you're going to get knocked right on that chin. Yeah, you've always said the most important thing for any form analyst is to remain true to a time-tested criteria, the criteria you've always believed in. You're immovable. Yeah, absolutely. I Look, there's so many ways to find winners, and people that study weights, people that study barriers, people that study jockey changes, they're all going to find winners. If it works for you, that's the way to go. For me, it's doing speed maps, trying to work out, envisaging a, a race, then you know, going through the weights and measures, and ultimately coming up with, you know, how selections and, and you know, to an extent pricing, but I'm not uh, I'm not one that is, is hell-bent on, on staying, sticking to prices as such, but uh, mm. then others are. So I, I don't deter anyone from the way they go about it, but when you find that formula that works for you, just stick to it. Yeah. I remember a, a very high-profile horse trainer telling me once, Dean, uh, that the most dangerous thing a trainer can do is change direction because the horses at a particular time are not going as well as they could be. Uh, he said a lot of trainers panic, they change the feed, they change the track work, they change everything. He said that is absolutely fatal. He said your methods have worked before and they'll work again. You've just got to ride it out. You do, you do, and it's a bit of, uh, I, I often take a lot of inspiration from other sports and You'll often hear football coaches say when they, a team wins by a big margin, it's not as they're not as good as that, or if they lose by a margin, they're not mm-hmm. as bad as that. So you've got to get somewhere in the middle. And I think you know horse training and, and racing in general is that you, if you can keep that graph somewhere in the middle, mm-hmm. you, you're doing just fine. But uh, yeah, don't change your methodology. And and yeah, horse trainers uh, you know can be very prone to that because it is uh, it, it can be a testing time when mm-hmm. they're uh, on a downer. Yeah. Your parents, Bob and Sandra, owned a few small stud farms when you were growing up at places like Dramana and Officer and Jembrook. So you fell under the spell of the thoroughbred pretty early in life. Yes, uh, my earliest memories are of, uh, of stallions and, and mares on stud farms and wonderful horses, uh, you know, a great horse that we uh, 
head called Martello Towers at stud, uh, mm. of course, uh, winner of a Triple Crown. And uh, he'd been to Perth and been very successful in Western Australia at stud. And Dad was fortunate enough to get him over in the, the late 60s, early 70s and stand two or three seasons in Victoria. And uh, he was such a big, imposing white horse by that stage. He's one of my earliest childhood memories. So, uh, you know, we, we always had one or two stallions and, and a, a band of mares. And uh, as, as you said, we travelled from stud to stud. And uh, the, uh, you know, the, the stud at Jembrook was probably the, the most uh, picturesque uh, farm you'd nearly ever see. But, uh, mm-hmm. it, uh, yeah, we, you know, it was, it was a really good time to, you know, grow up around horses. And that's all I knew, that they were, they were there. Mm. The old film footage of Martello Towers at the height of his powers, probably as a three-year-old, uh, will indicate that he was a lovely, fluent-actioned, long-striding grey horse. He was almost white in his latter years. Yeah, he was. And, uh, and of course, he su- survived the uh, the horrific floods in Hawkesbury. And uh, I remember mm. you know, reading about it. One of the first things I, I was reading about uh, was you know these Articles because uh, you know Mum wanted me to know you know he wasn't just the white horse out in the paddock he was the triple crown winner that survived floods and was uh, you know, a magnificent racehorse and and uh, yeah he was he was certainly uh, very very prominent in my formative years and was ridden in most of his wins by a great old mate of mine the late George Podmore yes George Podmore indeed well sadly your mum and dad separated down the track and Sandra moved to a five-acre property at Cranbourne, where you've spent most of your life. Now, Dean, miraculously, you lived a fairly normal childhood. You were playing football, you were playing cricket and a bit of golf. By the way, did you show any flashes of brilliance at any of the three? Uh, I had had a little bit of ability at the golf caper, John. Uh, The football, I was no good at all. Cricket, uh, I was... an honest toiling opening batsman, probably a Jeffrey Boycott style, <laughs> hold up an end. Yeah, uh, <laughs> could get through that. But uh, yeah, golf. Uh, was fortunate enough to be in a team that won a Victorian schoolboys title mm. uh, in 1984. So uh, yeah, we were fortunate enough to win that, and uh, yeah, played uh, at a reasonable level in, in golf. But yeah, the childhood mm. was yeah very very normal, and yeah, we moved to uh, to a farm just out of Cranbourne uh, to. To go to a to a better level of schooling, and I was very fortunate mm. to go to the Peninsula Grammar at uh, Mount Eliza, and uh, yeah. uh, it was a, a wonderful school to be a part of. Well, your dad had moved to a place with a an intriguing name, Kuwirup, uh, with his new partner, who happened to be a horse trainer, and this led you to an opportunity to ride a bit of slow work from time to time. But I don't think you have the right build to pursue a professional career, did you? Uh, no, not really, John. No, not really. Um, it was, uh, but it was a lot of fun and and to just learn and feel the, the thoroughbred, uh, you know, how they move. And it, it was a, a little part of the education. But uh, yeah, I was I was lucky enough uh, to to probably for about uh, five or six years before school, um, you know, you know, ride at least one a morning and uh, mm. and you know pursue that. You've always loved the atmosphere of the racetrack in the dawn light. And this is where you became friendly with Cranbourne trainers like Colin Alderson and Bill Allen was another. You would just watch and listen and soak up whatever they had to say. You were fascinated. Yeah, yeah. Well, well Mr Allen, he trained, at, uh, he trained at Epsom. He trained horses for my father and 
I'd often spend a, a Friday night, and Bill was always first to the track uh, at Epsom uh, at about 3.45, so you had to stay with Mr. and Mrs. Allen and get up at about quarter three and uh, mm-hmm. go down, and we had uh, – we had uh, he had some very good horses. He had a very good horse called Galleon that he sold to uh, Robert Sangster after he won a Sandang Guinness, uh, mm-hmm. and he had a, a good city-class staying horse uh, for my father called Lee Rani. Mm. who uh, was beaten by Belldale Ball at uh, Mooney Valley not long before he won the Melbourne Cup. So mm. uh, we had good horses there. But when we were at Cranbourne, yeah, Colin Alderson was the one. And I'll never forget uh, 1982, um, mid-1982, I was waiting to use the uh, horse wash with our horse. And mm. Colin Alderson had this beautiful liver chestnut horse in the in the uh, wash. And uh, I mean, typical uh, of me being a 13-year-old inquisitive, I said, what's that horse, Mr. Alderson? And he said, this horse will win the Metropolitan Sun. He said, "You've probably never heard of him. His name's Nicholas John. Oh, gosh, I've just got yeah. him. I've just got him. I've just got him from Adelaide." Mm. He said, "I'll tell you now. He'll win the Metropolitan." And uh, at that stage, he hadn't won a city race in Melbourne, mm. and he won two or three in a row. And then he won the uh, Colin Stephen, and then he won the uh, Metropolitan. And then yeah. on the way home, he won the Canberra Cup. And had he got him, I think prior that was when the the Melbourne Cup entries were taken in June. Mm. I think had he been entered for the Melbourne Cup that year. He didn't really won it because he always had the measure of Gurner's Lane. Yes, yeah. Dean, uh, Nicholas John, I think, was ridden in that Metropolitan by the great Peter Cook. And if memory serves me rightly, he landed a decent old plonk too. Yeah, there were some very high-profile uh, punters in that horse and uh, I think they that's why they, uh, they, they'd they uh, invested early and maybe even on the – I think it was Dalmatia winning the Epsom into mm. – uh, into him winning the uh, Metropolitan. I think that was the double that they might have got very heavily involved in. Mm. You were midway through your HSC year when the ravages of spina bifida started to make their presence felt. You had your first major surgery at 18 and that wasn't the last. No, that's true. John, I'd had uh, surgery when I was young. I had quite a few surgeries when I was three or four and then Everything had sort of uh, it was just maintenance and and checkups every three to six months and everything was you know going along well but I was getting very severe back pains um, in my HSC you know I was a bit worried of, I was probably the stresses of doing the HSC and and doing uh, too much but uh, then uh, scans showed that I'd, I'd had a narrowing of a uh, an area close to my bladder and that was cool, or close to my kidneys and causing a lot of pain so I had to go undergo a big surgery. And, uh, yeah, put me out of business for a long time. You've always been a bloke of intense focus and you had no doubt you wanted a life with horses and a future in racing. And what better way to start than as a trackman at Cranbourne, a job that came about when ill health forced Graham Schofield to retire. I think a local trainer recommended you for that job. Yeah, it's very true. It's uh, those, as they say, sliding doors sort of moment. Uh, uh, Graham Schofield, I, I was going to the track and I, I knew Graham well and, and Graham was suffering with ill health at the time and uh, and then out of the blue, he he, drank the, uh, he was working for the Sporting Globe and the Sportsman and, and Radio 3UZ and, and said that he couldn't do it anymore. And the one that uh, tried, picked up the phone was an assistant at the Sporting Globe, a, a lovely woman by the name of Jenny Simons and she picked up the phone and rang Ken Keys and the only combination that they had together or the only contact that they had was uh, Jenny when uh, she gave she was pregnant with her son mm. 
And uh, Lu- Louise, who was uh, pregnant at the time with her, her daughter that now trains Casey, were doing um, birthing classes together. Good. So that was mm. so. Uh, so uh, Jenny rang uh, Louise Keys and put the phone over to Ken and said, "Have you got any suggestions for this track cocker's job?" And mm. he said, oh, "I think I might have the guy for you." And uh, out of the blue, um, a week before my twenty-first birthday, uh, Jenny Simon from the Sporting Globe rang on a Wednesday afternoon and. Mm. Uh, and said, uh, would you like to start? And I said, yes. I said, when do I start? She said, in the morning. Uh, go down and, <laughs> and send us some copy. Uh, so I, I did. And then uh, later that day from Radio 3 UZ, Christine Hurrigan rang me and said, would you like to be on the Saturday morning show with the Track Clockers segment? And uh, I did that mm. on the uh, on the 2nd of September 1989, mm. the day before my 21st birthday. Mm. And, Dean, it was the morale boost you were badly needing at that time of your life? Uh, certainly, John. Yeah, I was wandering along. I, as I've said, I wanted to be in racing in some form and uh, I've been introduced to a very good uh, Melbourne journalist by the name of Adrian Dunn who worked for the Melbourne Herald. Mm. And Adrian was actually throwing me little little jobs here and there, doing the form comments that prefer others and hard to beat and all those sort of comments that used to be in the form guides. And I used to do uh, yeah, maybe one meeting a fortnight uh, for about $50. And uh, that was, you know, I, I had got a little taste for it, but that, you know, obviously it wasn't going to be a sustainable income, but uh, I mm. needed something that, to boost me. And you're right, that was the, the kick along I needed. Mm. Well, it all snowballed from there because before you knew it, you've got to start with winning post and you continued to make regular contributions to Sportsman, the Herald Sun, 3UZ, and your original supporter, the Sporting Globe. Dean, you were probably at your most active as a punter in your 20s and into your early 30s. I think you've always been principally a straight-out punter, haven't you? Uh, you don't mind an odd quaddy, but principally back them on the nose. Yeah, pretty much. Might back a couple in a race or, or a little each way play. But as you said, John, uh, yeah, the uh, whether it's uh, you know my youth, I, I was uh, too adventurous, but uh, I, I certainly used to have a bit of a crack, and uh, and yeah, it was it was good times. It sort of certainly uh, supplemented my income and uh, probably got me through my my twenties pretty well. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, a couple of really good days certainly helped uh, to kick me along. You've enjoyed a few handsome wins over the years, and I believe one of them was substantial enough to finance you into a house. It is, it uh, certainly was, and it's the house I'm still in today. But uh, yeah, it was uh, in uh, April 1999, and uh, a horse uh, that I part owned, a horse called Go With the Flow, we'd set in for a race called the Sandown Country Cup, and mm. he was right on song for the race. Everything had worked out perfectly for him, and uh, uh, I was surprised he was sort of 12 to 1 and thought he had a very good chance. But uh, by chance on the same day, uh, my very, very close friend and uh, very good trainer, Robbie Griffiths, had a first starter by uh, the name of Soraya. And I'd been clocking her and I knew she went pretty well. And uh, the, the, she went up uh, about 20 to 1. So uh, I did have something on the double of the two of them and something on both of them. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very good day. And into a new joint. Into a new joint, that's right. I was running a little unit before that and all of a sudden I was in a three-bedroom house. I didn't know what to do with myself. Oh, lovely. Did you gradually become aware that you were developing a following? Uh, You were obviously getting feedback at the track 
which made you realise people were starting to take notice of what you were saying. At what point did you convince yourself that the time had come to put your hand up as a serious professional form analyst? Yeah, John, I, uh, uh, it was in the in the 90s, in the era of uh, you know, pre-smartphones and websites, etc. cetera. The, 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 the thing was uh, to have a phone service, uh, and I had a 1900 phone service and uh, put my name out there and advertised it, and uh, it uh, was a very modest income for about 12 months. But then sort of it built and it gradually got a bit stronger and I thought, well, people are obviously, you know, reinvesting and, and enjoying what, you know, I'm putting out there. And then uh, with, the again, uh, Steve Cairns putting me out there doing the mounting yard reports from these provincial tracks and then in July 1998, he called me into the office. He said, I, I want to see you. And I, I didn't think that sounded too good the way he said it, but uh, he actually wanted he, he actually wanted me to show me the studios which I'd never been in, yeah. and said uh, I'd like you to be part of the Saturday morning panel, and and that is prime time for a form analyst, whether it be in Sydney on Sky Sports Radio or Melbourne down here and at RSN yeah. eight till nine, and working with the the great Keith Hillier and and Shelley yeah. Hancock's and uh, learning my radio craft uh, via their two you know two iconic performers in Melbourne anyway. You've always credited a man called David Price as being your first real mentor. I know you admired his knowledge and the scientific way he approached form analysis, and happily he was more than happy to pass on a few pointers. Yeah, well, I had these – I was clocking the horses at Cranbourne and uh, I was clocking these gallops that I thought were winning gallops. And they'd go to the races and they'd run eighth. And I'm thinking, well, I'm doing something wrong here. Mm-hmm. And uh, a very good uh, friend of mine um, at the time, uh, a very good uh, little jockey, Barry uh, Wyatt, mm-hmm. um, introduced me to David Price. He said, uh, maybe you need to refine your, your form skills. And David and I, uh, I'd ring David on a daily basis and I'd say, oh, I've seen this horse and it's galloped well. And he'd just say, no, his form's not good enough. And, and he'd be right time and time again, and then I'd pick his brain about what he was looking for, and it was the era when videos were, were starting to come in, as in, you know, we didn't have home sky at that stage, but you'd go to the, you could go and watch the races uh, at a hotel, or, you know, videos were more and more accessible, and he was absolute master of, uh, of assessing races, and, and he imparted that knowledge onto me, uh, and uh, I, I took it in, and, and then, you know, it, it combined with the, the track work, it started to, started to all make a bit more sense. Mm. You have great respect for fellow form gurus Mark Hunter and David Gately. I think you three swap notes from time to time. Certainly with Mark Hunter. I I, I work with uh, Gator on a Saturday morning uh, between 8 and 9 at RSN, so I stay away from him because I don't want us to, to sort of uh, blend in notes. But uh, Mark Hunter and I will swap notes through the week about horses and, and you know, and, and how, you know, especially how a track might play or things like that. Mark also came through the David Price School and I have great respect for Mark's insight and uh, and I'm sure the Sky Sports Radio listeners uh, are well aware of Mark's deeds and, and his ability to find winners and, uh, yeah, the, the mutual respect there is, is very strong. There are few things in racing in which you haven't been involved Jockey management uh, is another one of your fortes. You've worked with a handful of great riders. 
none more brilliant than a bloke called Simon Marshall. You tell the story, Dean, of driving him to Yarra Glen one day on a stinking hot day and he insisted on having the heater on in the car all the way down there. Simon did it tougher than most, didn't he? He did, John. Uh, Simon and I, uh, we grew up uh, together. So I met Simon when I was 15, so Simon would have been 13 at the time, and uh, we did all sorts of uh, pursuits. We were both, you know, Simon outside of racing is very sport-minded. We played tennis, we played golf. We were in a 10-pin bowling team together, uh, and uh, ironically, Simon had to give up bowling because he had to save his $9 a week, uh, the bowling fee, to uh, buy his race gear to start race riding. So uh, we've known each other that long. And, I, yes, I used to drive Simon to the races a lot and often, yeah, going to those uh, with Sale and Yarra Glen and in the middle of summer with the heater on wasn't the most pleasant experience. But uh, <laughs> Simon, Simon was the one that taught me about uh, understanding tempo because I could watch a race and you can, you know, but, but watching what a jockey's trying to do and achieve and getting into the rhythm of a horse and getting that synergy with a horse. So uh, I was so blessed that uh, our journeys were together um, and Simon, you know, as the horseman and way before his time with style and we talk about the whip rules now, Simon didn't rely on, on using the whip. He was a beautiful hands and heels rider and could get the best out of tricky horses. A horse like Durbridge he used to, used to get uh, great results out of and uh, yeah, he taught me well. And I managed Simon uh, a couple of times through his career because he had a few breaks but uh, certainly managed him. And mm. it was through managing Simon I actually rang up for a ride in 1996 to Mick Price uh, and rang him for a ride on a horse called Tollbell. He was a mm. good old stayer and uh, he said, no, I'm claiming off him, uh, but I might have another job for you. He said, I, I use Peter Mertens a lot and he needs a manager. Uh, and I hadn't thought about it, but it was the time that the Sporting Globe was closing, so I needed another stream of income, and I thought, well, uh, maybe this is the go, and uh, and Peter rang me, and uh, over the next uh, seven years, 800, 800, <coughs> excuse me, 800 winners later, mm. uh, we had a great association. A uh, very underrated writer, champion bloke, uh, and a, a good Group 1 record relative to the uh, opportunities he got at the elite level. Yeah, I mean, Pete didn't ride his first Group 1 winner till he was about 36 years of age and mm. yet rode, you know, uh, I think he ended up with about seven Group 1 winners. But mm. uh, his ability to ride hundreds of winners each year uh, and just keep churning out the winners was just remarkable. And, uh, and yeah, he's got a wonderful, uh, he had a wonderful career. Luke Curry was another of your clients, a top rider who's enjoying a good run at the moment. How different it could have been for Luke if he'd been able to retain the ride on Maccabi Diva before her first cup win in 2003. Yeah, it was a, it was a, that was probably the hardest experience I've had uh, in racing, full stop, let alone jockey management, was that uh, uh, Maccabi Diva was, was Luke's ride uh, and uh, it, was, it was actually offered to Glenn Boss and he'd accepted the ride on Republic Lass for the spring, so they were going to similar races, so he was on Republic Lass and uh, for the, the late great guy Walter, and unfortunately she broke down in mid-September, and Glenn Boss sort of then put his hand up and said, "I'm available for Maccabi Diva." And the the uh, ownership group of Tony Sandick and David Hall went down that path, and David Hall's racing manager uh, uh, Annie uh, Morton she uh, mm. rang me and said, "Look, Luke's off uh, 
Maccabi Diva. And uh, so I had to ring Luke. Uh, I can remember it was a late Tuesday evening and, and giving the news. And uh, it was yeah, it was it was very hard because we knew that she if she wasn't going to win the Melbourne Cup, she was going to go mighty close. I don't think any of us thought she'd win three, but uh, yeah, it was it was a tough t- a tough a tough time for you know to do deliver that news and and very tough for Luke, but. Uh, He's been very resilient through his career, through injuries and those sort of things, and he's getting the fruits of his labour now. Mm. Just get you to stand by for a moment, Dean, while we clear a commitment on the podcast, and we'll be back with you very shortly. Snap Melbourne lockdown forced the rescheduling of many events, including the English Great Southern Sale, which will now be held on July 4th and 5th, with 409 weanlings and 125 broodmares to be offered. Stallions represented in the weanling section include Capitalist, Exceed and Excel, More Than Ready, Zoo Star, Written Tycoon, So You Think, Piero, Extreme Choice, Flying Artie, and Done Deal, just to scratch the surface. First season sires with weanlings in the sale include Justify, Trapeze Artist, Written By and Brave Smash. The Broodmare section will be held on day two and features a mix of proven producers and young mares in full to big name stallions. If you're a buyer who likes to buy a weanling at a realistic price and turn it over the following year at a handsome profit, remember the Great Southern Sale has been described as a pinhooker's paradise. The new dates again are Sunday, July the 4th and Monday, July the 5th, the 2021 English Great Southern Sale at Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. My special guest is form analyst Dean Lester from Victoria. Dean, you managed Noel Callow, who was a guest on our podcast recently. He's now on the Gold Coast riding plenty of winners. That was a sudden decision. He just threw his gear in the boot and took off for Queensland. Yeah, I don't know if anyone manages Noel Callow, but uh, I think you sort of uh, point him in a direction and he just rides winners. Uh, he's a he's a curious character. Again, uh, uh, when he was a 15-year-old apprentice, uh, Eddie Lang, his master, asked me to drive him to the races one day at Tarogan and uh, I did that. And uh, uh, so I struck up a little bit of a friendship with Noel from when he was 15 years of age and uh, Managed him for a while. It was a <laughs> a chance uh, meeting, John. We uh, it was Mornington Cup day, and uh, I, post the meeting, I was going out for dinner, and I went through a, a bottle shop at a hotel, and Noel was working in the bottle shop. Yeah. And he said, uh, he said, you're in jockey management now, aren't you? I said, yes. And he said, well, he said, uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, Justin Bain, has been very keen for me to get back riding. If I get back riding, would you? Uh, manage me and I said yep uh, that'd be fine and that mm-hmm. was in the February it was Mornington Cup day and I didn't hear any more of it and about uh, mid-June that year he rang me he said right I've got my weight right I'm ready to go mm-hmm. and I said okay we'll uh, we'll give it a go and uh, he's a he's a whirlwind uh, fellow he knows how to win he's uh, he's traveled the world with it and uh, I'm incredibly proud of what he's done he's uh, he can have his moments, but uh, when he's on song, there's not many better. Mm. And Mark Flaherty, Dean, another very talented rider who battled weight for most of his career. Yes, he did. And again, he was in the group with Simon Marshall uh, when we were all growing up together. Mark had never touched a horse, so he was on the back foot and uh, he'd come out to Lenny Marshall's place. We put him on the pony and Lenny insisted that he ride the pony bareback and 
we'd we'd send him off down the paddock, and the next thing you'd see the pony coming back riderless, and these two <laughs> legs stuck up in the air in the in the long grass that uh, mm. young Mark had fallen off, but uh, he persisted, and probably one of the most determined human beings I've ever seen. When he was he, there was no in between with Mark; he either rode and he was full on, or mm. he'd have three months off to regenerate and and feel good about himself and. Yeah. He forged a wonderful career, and, and Regal Roller, of course, was his, his, his headline horse. Yeah. Inevitably, horse ownership has been a passion for Dean Lester. A couple of horses stand out. Firstly, Big Pat. You were part of a syndicate who purchased this horse in 2003 as a five-year-old. He went to your good mate Robbie Griffiths, and at his fourth start for you, he won the Saab quality at Flemington launching him into the Melbourne Cup of the same year. Yeah, it was a phenomenal ride, John, to be honest. And uh, it was it was through the jockey management that I knew of Big Pat. I uh, was very keen to get Peter Mertens on Big Pat. And uh, ultimately I did uh, in 2001. And uh, he won the St. Ledger and then he won the Derby. And he ran in a Caulfield and Melbourne Cup. And then the horse sort of went in and out of form and lost his way a little bit. And after pretty moderate run at Mooney Valley in May uh, 2003. Uh, I always used to have a debrief with Peter Mertens after his rides and on the way home on a Saturday night. And I said, oh, what about the old horse? And he said, you know what? He said, I think they're sick of him. I think they might sell him. And uh, with that, I, I got on the phone to Robbie. And I said, if you can get a group together or we can get a, a bloodstock agent to ring up and see if he's for sale. And uh, by the Sunday night, we purchased him pending a bit examination and, yeah. By the Friday, he was at Robbie's place. So it was then try and rebuild him as quick as we can and try and get him to the Melbourne Cup. And to see it all fall into place uh, was just an uh, extraordinary time. And, uh, mm. you know, certainly even though I've won a Group 1, having a Melbourne Cup run is still the highlight of, of my racing life so mm-hmm. far. And he wasn't disgraced in that Cup. He, he, he wasn't tenth. all that, yeah. Yeah, he ran 10th. He earned prize money, but... Uh, Des Gleeson, actually, the chief steward, uh, I was leaving the course with him that day and he said, that was one of the cleanest cups ever run, but your horse got held up for about 200 metres on straightening. He said, I think he should have run top five. And mm. when you watch a replay, he's probably right. He was on the back of Maccabi Diva and he, he just got into trouble at a crucial stage. So we were very proud of him. Uh, he suffered a, a not a significant injury, but at the stage of his career that it was, it was an injury that it was going to be hard for him to recapture his form and uh, and ultimately he was retired uh, after about another eight or ten runs. Mm. You absolutely loved a horse called the quarterback, whose overall record was nine wins and eight placings for one and a half million. Were you in the ownership all the way through? I was, John. Uh, he was bought as a yearling and um, there was a I loved him as a yearling, but there was an emotional attachment to him because his granddam was a mare called Soraya, who we mentioned earlier. Oh yeah, uh, who who helped uh, fund my uh, my house, mm. and uh, she was the granddam of uh, the quarterback. And uh, the dam of the quarterback, Serena, had ability, but never really, you know, reached the potential she should have. But uh, when Robbie said he bought the quarterback, uh, I'd actually. Uh, bought into another horse within that year, and I said, no, I've got to go into him as well. And uh, mm. he was showing us unbelievable ability, John, but he was a colt, and he was he just couldn't handle being a colt, basically. Uh, and we, we ran him as a colt at Geelong, and he played up in the barriers, and he ran fourth, and he should have won, but he was his own worst enemy, and he's actually 
nearly harming himself. He was that uh, aggressive. Mm. So he was gelded and uh, he came back as a three-year-old and he showed us a lot. And we thought he was probably a guineas horse, but he had a, a minor bleed in the uh, Australian guineas uh, behind Seamus Award. And Robbie said, this is just going to be a recurring theme. We're just going to have to keep him to sprinting. And whilst we think he's probably a better miler, we'll just keep him to sprinting. And uh, as a sprinter, uh, he, he delivered us some wonderful results. And it was a fabulous thing that Flemington was his favourite track because he mm. uh, he won there, I think, what, five times? Five times, a, yeah. Yeah, a new market in the Gilgai. Mm. Ah, great fun, great fun horse. And mm. go with the flow, of course, Dean. We don't need to elaborate there. You've already mentioned him. And go with the flow was uh, one of the uh, legs into that wonderful double that got you into that new house we were talking about. Yeah, he... he he put food on the table when I needed it, and he put a roof over my head when I needed it. John, he was uh, mm. he was like a like an ATM. He you just uh, the days that he was right, he would win, and he he was yeah. uh, he was so so reliable that horse. Uh, you know, you just have to find a race where they went hard in front, yeah. and he could steam down the centre. And if that was the case, he could win. Mm. That's what you called him—a four-legged ATM. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Uh, people will be surprised, I imagine, when you nominate Zipping as your all-time favourite horse. There's no doubt he was an iron horse, 47 starts, 16 wins, 10 placings, four and a half million. He won a Group 1 as a nine-year-old. He won four Group 2s, he ran fourth in a Melbourne Cup and second in a Cox Plate. I can see where you're coming from. Yeah, look, I admire versatility in horses, John, and he had it. He, I, I'd never backed a horse. I had a little something on him in a new market, and I backed him in a Melbourne Cup. So to think that you backed him in those sort of races and uh, also in a Cox Plate, I was really keen on him in 2008, and he ran well, and then um, he, he was uh, behind So You Think uh, in a, a Cox Plate, and he was a marvellous horse. And uh, his longevity and his versatility uh, probably – uh, his ability to ha- handle all conditions to put him just ahead of Shaftesbury Avenue, who's my other favourite, because Shaftesbury Avenue had that versatility as well. Uh, I explained to people when they, the the younger form analysts that don't remember Shaftesbury Avenue, I said, well, think of a calendar year where a horse can win a Lightning Stakes, a New Market, an All Age, a Caulfield Stakes, and run third in the Japan Cup. And that mm. was just one calendar year. Yeah, see what you mean, versatility again. Mm. So Zipping mm. and Shaftesbury Avenue based mainly on their amazing versatility. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I mean, Black Caviar and Winks are in that uh, elite category internationally, Frankel, but, uh, you know, those those soldiers that turn up year in, year out and just give their absolute best, they were two of my mm. favourites. Shaftesbury Avenue became a victim of the Randwick half-mile crossing in the early 90s, uh, which was under fire at the time from all quarters. He had to be put down after suffering a serious injury in a track gallop one morning. It was bad news. Yeah, terrible. I mean, he was yeah, I mean, uh, just a tremendous horse. And I remember when he came back after that uh, Japan Cup and he won the, I think it was the Warwick Stakes, maybe mm. in the spring of 92. And I think he was setting up to have his best ever preparation and uh, and wasn't to be. You're currently mentoring the brilliant young jockey, Jai McNeil, rider of the last Melbourne Cup winner, Twilight Payment. Now, there's a young bloke, Dean, with the head of a much older man, it seems. Yeah, the, the 
great thing about Jai is first and foremost he's a he's a wonderful human being. He's uh, he's very measured. Uh, he's, as you said, he's got a uh, an, an old soul. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And uh, his riding is now catching up to that maturity. And uh, what he did last November was. Uh, uh, it was so uh, brave uh, because I, you know, I knew on the morning of the race that he was going to be asked to go out and lead all the way, and uh, you don't see it happen in Melbourne Cups very often. And they've got to be the likes of might and power to do it. And uh, he knew he was going to have to do it, and then ramp it up again from about the 800 and make it the most severe staying test he could. And I think it's the fourth fastest Melbourne Cup in history, so he got it uh, inch perfect, really. Mm. How's his weight, Dean? Uh, he's a natural lightweight, John. In the spring of last year, he rode uh, Grand Slam in the Cox Plate, 49 and a half. And uh, mm-hmm. with uh, only a few days' notice, he rode out that Barbie in the Stradbroke uh, at uh, 51 and a half kilos. So, yeah, he's his weight's very good, very stable. He's got wonderful work-life balance. He's got a beautiful partner about to be his wife uh, in Jess, who was a, a very competent jockey in her own right, Jessica Payne. Mm-hmm. And they've got a lovely... Uh, young uh, son in Oakley who's uh, just turned 10 months of age. So uh, uh, things are great for Jai and he's a joy to work with because he's so even in his demeanour day in, day out. And uh, I think as a punter, you can know he goes to the races every day in a very similar mindset and that's uh, that's a great thing to have. Mm. Well, this podcast would not be complete without special mention of a lady who has been a tower of strength through some of your darkest days. Your partner, Leanne, who, as a niece of the legendary Queensland trainer, Eric Kerwin, knows what a racehorse looks like. She certainly does, and that's uh, where our, uh, how we met. There's via uh, ownership in a, a racehorse, in, in a syndicated, syndicated horse called English Gambler, and uh, from that, uh, you know, the last uh, two and a half years has been... Uh, Wonderful partnership, and uh, to say that uh, Leanne deserves better times ahead, and that's what we're aiming for because uh, she's seen me uh, virtually at my worst for the last two and a half years and uh, wouldn't have got through it without uh, her uh, attention to detail uh, with regard to my treatment, to my lifestyle, uh, and her love and devotion to me has been second to none. I've been very, very fortunate. Dean, yours is a story of inspiration. I'm absolutely delighted you were able to share it with us. You've conquered many a mountain to realise your dream and you followed that dream with enormous passion. You're an ornament to the racing media, mate, and it's a great privilege to have you on my podcast. Thank you, John, and uh, it's been an absolute honour to be on your podcast uh, with uh, We've met on a couple of occasions and we had, were fortunate enough to have you as our guest speaker at the VRMA luncheon a couple of years ago that I'm on the committee of. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very flattered that uh, you've asked me on this show this morning and uh, I really enjoyed it. Our special guest is Dean Lester on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. <laughs>